companies have to do a better job about being proactive about knowing who their supply chain is, who those actors are, right? And the practices of those actors. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance on the ESG report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, somewhat with a scratchy throat, but back again for another episode. And I'm thrilled today to have back with me my good friend, former colleague, and knower of all things ESG, Jared Connors. Jared, first of all, welcome back. Yeah, thank you, Tom. And glad to hear you're powering through here and hopefully getting better soon. So, Jared, could you remind our audience your current role? Yeah, so I'm on the regulatory team with Ascent. So if you want to check out our website, that's Ascent.com. And we do all things supply chain, including product compliance, regulations like ROHS and REACH in the European Union to trade compliance activities, and also the wonderful topic of ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And my role is all about supporting understanding the market. So we're like an internal think tank, if you will, within the regulatory team. That means that we're out engaging the makers of standards and frameworks and regulatory agencies to help make heads or tails of what companies are going to be faced with and how they should go about those compliance activities. Well, Jared, one of the reasons I wanted to visit with you for this episode is I wanted to maybe take a a retrospective look back at 2022, but equally importantly, to look at where that may be leading us for 2023. And I'd like to start off with the regulatory component of ESG with the mandatory climate disclosure requirements being developed and something called CSRD requirements. Could you tell us what those are? where they were in 2022, and more importantly, where you see them going in 2023. Yeah, you bet. Well, first of all, these two regulations, obviously mandatory climate disclosures being a proposed regulation here in the United States, and then you've got CSRD being a regulation that will go into effect in the very near future. On the European side of the pond, the interesting part about these is how parallel they are to each other. And and never before, in my opinion, have we seen regulations in the sustainability space be so parcel to each other on both sides of the pond. They're very complementary in the fact that they look at climate in certain ways, you know, look at uh, frameworks like TCFD. And again, I'm not advocating, like I'm sure that Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC, is not advocating that you have to use TCFD, although we'll see in the comments period. But the interesting part about these two regulations is that they're very, very material to the framework of TCFD and the way that aligns to the data-driven disclosures for carbon, for all environmental topics, in fact, you know, waste generation and water consumption. So we'll see some interesting things come about. And what's happening, though, in 2022, early on in 2022, everybody was talking about mandatory climate disclosures here in the United States. Now that hasn't changed, but now global companies are all of a sudden also talking about CSRD on the European side of the pond and thinking about the creation of digital passport and what's going to be required there at a product level to essentially have the ability for you to look at a product and say, this is the impact of the manufacturing and use case of this particular product through that digital passport. So it's going to be, a, will say, interesting next couple of years for sure. Jared, where do you see all of this regulatory movement juxtaposed with states beginning to look at legislation or enforcements against companies who follow ESG 
guidelines or requirements? This is, uh, I'll say, an interesting time because, I mean, you've got two very strongly willed sides of the pond here with the idea of, is it doing the right thing? Is it not doing the right thing? Is it enforcing unnecessarily on companies? Is it actually moving companies towards more transparency and ethical practices? Some of these different areas, whether it be like examples of enforcement on modern day slavery against companies, I don't think that's going to go away. I don't see how that goes away in the current market. I don't see how, as a society, we stop our kind of trend towards holding corporations more accountable for their activities, both domestically and abroad. And of course, measuring their footprint on the world, especially as we start to see these just mega corporations just massively expanding out there. And I guess I see that even as something going back to the business roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation, really enlarging who a corporation is responsible to from simply shareholders to five different sets of stakeholders, including shareholders, but also employees, third parties, localities and customers and trying to have a conversation to really move the ball forward with all of those. So I, for one, am going to be interested to watch that whole dynamic play out. And I think companies may have to thread some pretty narrow needles going forward. Let's turn to product compliance. And we had a chance a little bit earlier this year to do a podcast series with you and your colleagues at Ascent. And we had a a really robust discussion around product compliance. And, And I have to admit, I had not really focused on product compliance as a component of ESG and more importantly, as sustainability. But that's one thing we really took a deep dive into. So I was wondering if we might explore how something that we used to call product liability now becomes product compliance and now has really moved in, not to a negative, but to a a net positive with sustainability. It all depends on how certain geographies or jurisdictions approach sustainability, right? In the European Union, they look at things like if you're going to put a product into my market, then it needs to meet these certain expectations, both for environmental impact during the manufacturing process, but then the use case of the product and also the disposal of it. And they also think about things like the recycle content of those products. They think about things like the environmental impact um, when you toss the product away and do I have to reclaim that product for recyclability? So there's lots of different ways to look at sustainability in the European Union viewed it as a barrier to entry into their market by creating these sustainable regulations. And people would argue, oh, you know, removal of lead, is that really sustainable practice? Is that the right way to go about it? Because lead and its malleability and solder, and if you use tin solder, it makes the product too brittle and and it's a better life cycle for the product. You know, you can get longer life out of the product with banging your phone around or you're dropping your laptop or something like that if you don't use tin mat solder. But As technology improves and the ability for companies or organizations to make these products equal, what are you going to take? Are you going to take the less sustainable material, the daughter material, the lead, or are you going to take the tin mat solder, which would be better for the environment and easier for you to recycle out of the product afterwards or or not contribute, you know, in a landfill situation to polluting the water table, for example, if it's lead-based solders and, and things like that in products. So That's just one of the early examples from the Reduction of Hazardous Substances Regulation that started in 2006, often called the lead-free initiative, right, as kind of a misnomer. But a lot of these regulations have a lot of good intent in them as well. Like California, they have Proposition 65, right? In the United States overall, we have 
Tosca. And we have these regulations that say we need to do something so we're not exposing people to these harmful chemicals because we've all seen the movie Aaron Brockovich and we know exactly what exposure to hazardous substances can mean and the impact it can have on families. Look at the case in Flint, Michigan and the pollution of the water table there. And that's why these things are so very important. And it all boils back to how sustainable are you as an organization as you make products and put them into market. So, Jared, frankly, that's one of the things that I find most exciting about this area because you've certainly been in an area where you looked at hazardous materials or products which were deemed to have either certain values within societies or certain dangers. But we never really took a very holistic approach of literally from digging it out of the earth, mining it to the manufacturing process, to the consumer use process, to the disposal process and then the reuse process. And so when I hear you describe that process around any sort of metal or any other product, I see a way for companies, it's almost like understanding who's in your supply chain five levels down, but you're taking a holistic approach. You're determining what the environmental or climate impact score might be, and then what might be the costs in there and what trade-offs are you willing to make? But you do it with eyes open. And myself as a consumer, I can make a consumer choice with that information. It's a very long-winded way of me saying why I find ESG so persuasive, which is that it's a business process, but it's a holistic business process looking at a business in a way we never have before. And just having that information, I think, is going to be valuable, not simply from a regulatory prospect, but really from a business prospect that you've laid out for me a way to put a system together to measure the different components of that system and then make an evaluation based upon whatever the information came out. So when I hear you describe that, and I've heard you describe that over several podcasts over several years, different parts of a ESG process, I find that to be the most significant thing about ESP. Does any of that resonate with you or am I just off at the top again? No, it's really important. Think about a few years ago, there was an infamous slap suit against about five or six American companies for pulling cobalt out of the ground in the DRC, out of the, what's called the copper belt in the DRC, in the southern part of DRC in Africa. And these companies obviously have zero direct relationship with not only the materials coming out of the ground, out of the copper belt in the DRC, but then or the processing of these at a refinery somewhere around the world. And then, of course, the sub-tier materials to make it into a battery anode for the cobalt. And so how are these American companies way downstream being sued for this? And so we're going to see a lot more of that because companies, or I should say NGOs and regulators, rightfully look at this and say, well, this wouldn't be happening over here. This butterfly wouldn't be flapping its wings over here if you didn't demand more of this material. And think about like the Paris Accord, right? It was stated at the Paris Accord that cobalt would be the key to a greener society, to a greener earth, to say that we could be more sustainable as a human race if we relied more on battery-powered rather than fossil fuel-powered things. And all of a sudden, as a result, the butterfly over here in the DRC flapped its wings and the price of cobalt skyrocketed at that time, again, because the demand on one of the best sources in the world, something more like 50-some percent of the world's supply of cobalt comes out of the DRC, all eyes are on that. We just had a representative who came back from a review of cobalt mines in the DRC just two weeks ago or three weeks ago. 
And she saw what's happening there firsthand and the impacts of downstream companies indirectly making these demands on the supply chain for more and more material. We as consumers making demands for more and more goods. Who still has a flip phone, right? We change out our phones once every couple of years or our laptops or our tablets. We as the consumers making these demands are having an impact on corporation supply and demand, and that's having an impact on supply and demand way upstream in the supply chain. And then you're able to measure or demonstrate that impact or that footprint on those downstream companies producing those products. Karen, let me turn now to something we have visited about at length, but I want to take another dive into it, and that's the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And we have talked about, or I have talked about why I think this law will be the model for a wide variety of compliance type laws going forward because it puts the burden of proof on the company to prove they were not using labor out of Xinjiang. And we unfortunately have had a situation come up or allegations of a situation where this law may be impacted in the United States. And so I was wondering if we could maybe have a broader discussion about I'm going to say trade compliance, but I'm not sure if it's inside the United States, it's called trade compliance. But how do you begin to help companies understand they've got to look at every level of people they're doing business with and the types of things you've talked about ever since I've known you about know your sourcing, know your supply chain, know your vendors, know the people you're doing business with is equally, if not more important, under the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. But every company needs to be cognizant of it and the dangers from social media if they are found to be in violation of something like this. Well, first, I have to apologize to all those trade professionals listening in because I wasn't going to argue that trade is not driving ESG or social accountability in this case. ESG is driving trade. That's what my argument is, first of all, because what I would look at this is saying that who else can get involved in enforcement and validation processes? And trade is a really good, U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency is a really good example of another agency, another acronym in the United States government that can say, well, we can help on enforcement and visibility to these things. So I think that trade is being steered towards social accountability and ESG topics in general because of the ability that they have to shed light on what's happening. And obviously, the U.S. government can't go into the borders of China and say, hey, what are you doing with these individuals over here in internment camps? And this isn't good. But what they can do is they can go to companies that are importing in the United States and they can say, hey, you're going to incur fine or penalty or seizure of goods if you don't demonstrate that you are doing effective due diligence to prove that these goods weren't manufactured or distributed in some form or fashion using forms of modern day slavery, like individuals in internment camps in China. And, you know, China has been very vocal, obviously, about this, calling it the evil regulation and things like that. And so they obviously take quite a stance to that. And what that means is two things. One, companies have to do a better job about being proactive, about knowing who their supply chain is, who those actors are, right? And the practices of those actors. And two, they have to persuade foreign entities, companies in China, to disclose detail about their internal controls, their labor practices. And when you as a Chinese national are not allowed to respond to something that includes the word Uyghur in it, or, you know, a nexus to forced labor in Zhejiang, or any of those kind of catchphrases in that request for information, how do you effectively validate 
that supply chain. So you have to go about the process of understanding the use cases of labor recruiters or goods, where they're providing those goods from, what type of goods they are to identify if they're one of the high-risk items. But you also need to go about as an organization to understand truly what is the stance of those suppliers that you work with and what are their kind of feelings towards addressing these things? Are they actually have something or is it in name only? And so there's a lot that companies really have to do to come forward and say to the CBP, because like you said, it's burden of proof is on you to say proactively, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for and shake that paper in the face of the CBP and show that you shouldn't have your goods seized at the border because unlike previous withhold release orders that had to do with forms of forced labor, because this isn't the first time there's ever been a withhold release order in the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency. In fact, the last time I investigated one personally in China was about five years ago, and that was well before UFLPA. And so now the difference is with this compared to older withhold release orders is that now companies actually have to proactively show that. It's no different anymore than you showing a bill of lading or proof of payment or verification of HS codes when, when gathering goods and the customs dock and saying, oh, that shipping container over there belongs to me. Let's take that over here. If you want to be able to do that, you have to show that packet of information. So now this law is requiring that you show that you also, like a bill of lading, also have effective due diligence to manage and monitor your supply chain and understand if they have any connection. I hate to say the word nexus as it's written, written in the law. Connection is just such more simple English. But you have to show that if you do or do not have that connection to forms of modern day slavery. And there's other examples of that, like the CTPAT requirements and more like a volunteerism thing for CTPAT, but it allows you to go forward and kind of like, you know, you or I could apply for global entry status when clearing customs back in the United States. It's like applying for CTPAT. You go through this program to show validation of all kinds of different compliance things like cybersecurity, modern day slavery, all of those types of things. And you can you can show validation of your practice. So it allows you to almost, in my analogy, would be clear customs easier by becoming a member of CTPAT. So Jared, it's interesting because I saw trade compliance immediately as a part of ESG. Although I focused on the governance component because it was how you set up your processes and procedures. You're really coming at it though from a sustainability component. And that may be a more powerful argument because I think the sustainability applies more to the business process mindset than the legal or regulatory mindset. I'm going to forgive you for not using the word nexus, but I'll allow you to speak like a civilian to the lawyers in this audience. But it really shows how many of these topics can go across each of the letters of ESG and have a touch point that properly managed can bring real strength to a program. Oh, absolutely. And differentiate you as a company so much. You know, you mentioned those other stakeholders, right? It's not just investors anymore, like employees, for example. How many young professionals today are evaluating employers for their stance to sustainability? It's overwhelming. You hear that talked about at sustainability conferences more than anything because they're saying, oh, yeah, we survey, you know, potential young people who are coming into our companies or new professionals. And the number one thing that they're looking at when they evaluate a company is sustainable practices or you've got some executive who is interviewing somebody and they'll, they'll ask the executive, you know, tell me about your sustainability commitments as an organization in interviews. And I hear that more and more anymore. So it's on the, how do I build a better organization and how do I build the bench strength within my corporation to have people who are really going to like see my vision through and help my company succeed. It's also on the consumer side that says, you know, people want to buy products and services that focus on 
the environment. I mean, look at the commercials anymore. I mean, like I tend to not watch live TV anymore myself, but if you watch commercials, I mean, what commercial doesn't have some aspect of sustainability in it? It's overwhelming. Most of the commercials anymore don't even show products. They show talk more about their community involvement, their philanthropic work, their focus on human rights, focus on environment, and then they'll tell you about what the product is in the commercial. So pay attention to that next time you're watching TV if you kind of tune it out. And then so on the other side too, you've also got the regulatory bodies saying, no, 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 we're going to actually start enforcing you on this. It's no longer going to be allowed that you get to make claims and not back that up with data. So like mandatory climate disclosures, again, is going to have a real impact on the way that companies disclose their sustainability practice. You know, there was a lots of marketing towards sustainability instead of actually doing sustainability. And, and so companies are being accused of that. Look what happened to H&M as an organization. And so you've got a lot of different aspects over here. And then on top of all of that, you've got investors. And investors are evaluating your performance, not just for financials, but also ESG performance and how you're evaluating yourself, essentially, or disclosing on yourself and the transparency that you provide in those disclosures. And those data sources that ESG, or I should say investors use to evaluate ESG are just getting more and more rigorous in the questions that they review and ask of organizations when they look at ESG. It's not so superficial. So it's going to be an interesting 2023, I'll say. Jared, let me pick up on uh, some general themes I heard in those last comments. You and I have talked about the regulatory aspect of ESG over several podcasts, including this one. And you and I both seem to believe that the regulators, both in the United States and in EU and the UK, have a sense of urgency. But I was intrigued by your remarks because the regulators were one of four or five groups you talked about. Other stakeholders, employees, investors, obviously shareholders, consumers, third-party localities. The thing that intrigued me the most is that sense of urgency I see with those other stakeholders now. I mean, you talked about new employees coming into the, the workforce who look at sustainability, who consider a company's commitment to a sustainable product or a service along those lines. And it's not just new employees coming in. I mean, we've had employee walkouts from large companies over the past couple of years where they felt that a component of ESG, whether it be sustainability, whether it be Me Too, whether it be diversity, whether it be doing business with certain various parties, led employees to becoming vocally upset at their companies to the point where they publicly protested their company stands. All of this is amplified by social media. And one of the most prescient statements I heard was from someone when we were talking about these issues, he said to me, look, Tom, the regulatory aspect is critical. It drives a lot of this. But if you violate a regulation, you're going to get a fine and penalty. If you violate a consumer, if you violate an employee, if you violate an investor, you've lost off the top line. You can't get investment dollars. A consumer is not going to buy your product. An employee may not work on that. And that's coming out of your top line in a way you cannot account for, you cannot reserve, and you're never going to get that sale back. And so one of the things that has intrigued me the most I really wanted to end this podcast with about 2022 is seeing how these other stakeholders are, if not driving as much as regulators, I think they're driving more. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on other stakeholders driving this entire discussion. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story from 2022. I was in Europe and I was talking to some different companies and 
one of the internal team members for a company I was chatting with said, how much is the fine for this particular regulation? It was a social accountability regulation. And we know we're talking about actual potential dollars, right? And it was pretty insignificant if you really think about it to a large, you know, multi-billion dollar corporation, really insignificant, in fact. And it was really interesting to watch the reaction of the other internal stakeholders around the table, namely the C-suite executives at the table and their reaction to this question and the kind of dismissal, oh, that's not that bad. You know, we could write that check for that speeding ticket and move right on and keep driving. And their reaction was something uh, more a little bit dramatic to say, that's nothing compared to what we're going to have from a reputational impact as a company or the potential impact to commercials, sales, B2B sales, because uh, if we don't meet these expectations of our customers, B2B customers, then we don't get to sell to them. It's the number one question in every RFP. And this was like an auto parts manufacturer. They're saying that if we don't have these sustainable practices, we can't even be awarded business. So of course we have to do it. It's not even a matter of the cost of this versus that. You know, if I, if I eat this extra helping at dinner, I might be a little uncomfortable after dinner for a little while and have to get on the Peloton a little harder tomorrow morning versus what it's going to do from a social standpoint for these organizations. And social media is what a powerhouse, right? It's good and bad. It's an experiment. I always say that social media is still an experiment. And it really truly is because look at how many people in the Twitter sphere, uh, including the now owner of Twitter, uh, (laughs) says some pretty outlandish things on a pretty regular basis. And we go, maybe you should have had that in a conversation before you said that publicly in the world. But also, there's other scenarios where it really does a lot of good in social justice. Think about you know, in the beginning of COVID, the case in Malaysia from a company that was very public that made PPE, personal protective equipment, in the beginning of COVID, and how critical PPE was in the beginning of COVID because all of us were wearing gloves in the grocery store. We didn't know what was happening with COVID. And this company was basically completely derailed through social media. And one of the second largest provider of surgical gloves at the time in the world being derailed by one, started with one tweet. Every snowball starts small at the top of the hill and, and starts to get bigger as it rolls down. And so, you know, social media can really destroy somebody's reputation or an organization's reputation. And, and, and sometimes in good ways and, and sometimes in bad ways. And some of those good ways we need to pay more attention to because it brings transparency to what's happening. And, you know, my final soapbox for you, Tom, is actually the word transparency. I've never liked the word sustainability, actually. I never have. I've been doing this since 2006, and I never liked that word because what is sustainability all about? It's all about transparency. But transparency, one is isn't as cool of a word, if you will, as sustainability, right? We all like that word. Everybody uses that in so many different ways. And transparency is what it's all about. And so social media is really a good driving force in a lot of ways to create transparency, which in turn creates accountability for those individuals and organizations that are doing harm. Well, Jared, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but if anyone wanted more information on Ascent or your work at Ascent, where should they go? Yeah, you can go to Ascent.com and check us out. You can also find me, Jared Connors, on LinkedIn, and I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about these things. Well, Jared, many thanks, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Bye now.